This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated PG for cleverness, occasional intense satire, and the potential to offend those who hold too strongly to certain literal beliefs. Nil Desperandum 5 Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven by Mark Twain Part 1 of 2 Samuel Longhorn Clemens, better known by his pen name, Mark Twain, is the shining luminary figure in American literature. He remains one of the most beloved and widely read novelists even today, being the creator of characters such as Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. He is also the author of numerous short stories, which still remain resonant and influential, such as A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court and The Prince and the Pauper. This story, Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven, was the last story published by Twain in 1909, a year before his death. Our narrator this week is Charlie White of Bear Crawling Punishment fame. Find him on the web at www.q2.com. Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven by Mark Twain Chapter 1 Well, I had been dead about 30 years... I begun to get a little anxious, mind you. Had been whizzing through space all of that time like a comet. Like a comet. Why, Peters, I laid over a lot of them. Of course, there weren't any of them going my way as a steady thing, you know, because they travel in a long circle like the loop of a lasso, whereas I was pointed as straight as a dart for the hereafter. But I happened on one every now and then that was going my way for an hour or so. And then we had a bit of a brush together. But it was generally pretty one-sided because I sailed by them the same as if they were standing still. An ordinary comet don't make no more than about 200,000 miles a minute. Of course, when I came across one of that sort, like Enke's or Halley's comets, for ex instance... It weren't anything but just a flash and a vanish, you see. You couldn't rightly call it a race. It was as if the comet was a gravel train and I was a telegraph dispatch. But after I got outside of our astronomical system, I used to flush a comet occasionally that was something like. We haven't got any such comets. Ours don't begin. One night I was swinging along at a good round gate, everything taut and trim and the wind in my favor. I judged I was going about a million miles a minute. It might have been more, could have been less, when I flushed a most uncommonly big one about three points off my starboard bow. By his stern lights I judged he was bearing about northeast by north half east. Well, it was so near my course that I couldn't throw away the chance, so I fell off a point, steadied my helm, and went for him. You should have heard me whiz, and seen the electric 
fur fly. In about a minute and a half, I was fringed out with an electrical nimbus that flamed around for miles and miles and lit up all space like broad day. The comet was burning blue in the distance like a sickly torch when I first sighted him, but he began to grow bigger and bigger as I crept up on him. I slipped up on him so fast that when he had gone about 150 million miles, I was close enough to be swallowed up in the phosphorescent glory of his wake, and I couldn't see anything for the glare. Thinks I it won't do to run into him, so I shunted to one side and tore along. By and by, I closed up abreast of his tail. Do you know what it was like? It was like a gnat closing on the continent of America. I forged along. By and by, I had sailed along his coast for a little upwards of 150 million miles. Then I could see the shape of him that I hadn't even got up to his waistband yet. Why, Peters? We don't know anything about comets down here. If you want to see comets that are comets... You've got to go outside of our solar system. Where there's room for them, you understand, my friend. I've seen comets out there that couldn't even lay down inside the orbits of our noblest comets without their tails hanging over. Well, I boomed along another 150 million miles and got up abreast his shoulder, as you may say. I was feeling pretty fine, I tell you. But just then I noticed the officer of the deck come to the side and hoist his glass in my direction. Straight off I heard him sing out, Below there! Ahoy! Shake her up! Shake her up! Heave on a hundred million billion tons of brimstone! Aye, aye, sir! Pipe the stabbered watch, all hands on deck! Aye, aye, sir! Send 200,000 million men aloft to shake out royals and skyscrapers. Aye, aye, sir. Hand the stencils. Hang out every rag you've got, clother from stem to rudder post. Aye, aye, sir. In about a second, I'd begin to see that I'd woke up a pretty ugly customer, Peters. In less than 10 seconds, that comet was just a blazing clout of red-hot canvas. It was piled up into the heavens, clean out of sight. The old thing seemed to swell out and occupy all space. The sulfur smoke from the furnaces. Oh well, no one can describe the way it rolled and tumbled up into the skies, and no one can half describe the way it smelled. Neither can anybody begin to describe the way that monstrous craft began to crush along. And such another powwow. Thousands of bosun's whistles screaming at once, and a crew like the populations of a hundred thousand worlds like ours all swearing at once. Well, I never heard the like of it before. We roared and thundered along, side by side, doing our level best because I'd never struck a comet before that could lay over me. So I was bound to beat this one or break something. I judged I had some reputation in space, and I calculated to keep it. I noticed I wasn't gaining as fast now as I was before, but I was still gaining. There was a power of excitement on board the comet. Upwards uh, of a hundred billion passengers swarmed up from below and rushed to the side and began to bet on the race. Of course, this careened her and damaged her speed. My... 
but wasn't the mate mad. He jumped at that crowd with his trumpet in his hand and sung out, I'm midships, I'm midships, you, or I'll brain the last idiot of ya. Well, sir, I gained and gained little by little till at last I went skimming sweetly by the magnificent old conflagration's nose. By this time, the captain of the comet had been rousted out, and he stood there in the red glare forward. By the mate, in his shirt sleeves and slippers, his hair all rat's nests and one suspender hanging, and how sick those two men did look. I just simply couldn't help putting my thumb to my nose as I glided away and singing out, Ta-ta, ta-ta, any word to send to your family. Peters, it was a mistake. Yes, sir, I've often regretted that. It was a mistake. You see, the captain had given up the race, but that remark was too tedious for him. He couldn't stand it. He turned to the mate and says he, Have we got brimstone enough of our own to make the trip? Yes, sir. Sure? Yes, sir, more than enough. How much have we got in cargo for Satan? Eighteen hundred thousand billion quintillions of Karzaks. Very well, then, let his borders freeze till the next comet comes. Lighten ship, lively, now lively, men, heave the whole cargo forward. Peters, look me in the eye and be calm. I found out over there that a Kazark is exactly the bulk of 169 worlds like ours. They hove all that load forward. When it fell, it wiped out a considerable raft of stars just as clean as if they'd been candles, and somebody blowed them out. As for the race, that was at an end. The moment she was lightened by the comet swung along by me, the same as if I was anchored. The captain stood on the stern by the after davits and put his thumb to his nose and sung out, Ta-ta! Ta-ta! Maybe you've got some message to send to your friends in the everlasting tropics. Then he hove up his other suspender and started forward, and inside of three quarters of an hour his craft was only a pale torch again in the distance, yes. It was a mistake, Peters, that remark of mine. I don't reckon I'll ever get over being sorry about it. I'd have beat the bully of the firmament if I'd have kept my mouth shut. But I've wandered a little off the track of my tail. I'll get back on my course again. Now you see what kind of speed I was making. So, as I said, when I've been tearing along this way about 30 years, I've begun to get uneasy. Oh, it was pleasant enough, with a good deal to find out, but then it was kind of lonesome, you know. Besides, I wanted to get somewhere. I hadn't shipped with the idea of cruising forever. First off, I liked the delay because I judged I was going to fetch up in pretty warm quarters when I got through. But, towards the last, I began to feel that I'd rather go to, well, most any place so as to finish up the uncertainty. Well, one night, it was always night. Except when I was rushing by some star that was occupying the whole universe with its fire and its glare. Light enough then, of course, but I necessarily left it behind in a minute or two and plunged into a solid week of darkness again. The stars ain't so close together as they look to be. Where was I? 
Oh yes, one night I was sailing along when I discovered a tremendous long row of blinking lights away on the horizon ahead. As I approached, they began to tower and swell and look like mighty furnaces. Says I to myself, By George, I've arrived at last and at the wrong place, just as I expected. Then I fainted. Don't know how long I was insensible, but it must have been for a good while, for when I came to, the darkness was all gone, and there was the loveliest sunshine and the balmiest, fragrantest air in its place. And there was such a marvelous world spread out before me, such a glowing, beautiful, bewitching country. The things I took for furnaces were gates, miles high, made all of flashing jewels, and they pierced a wall of solid gold that you couldn't see the top of, nor yet the end of, in either direction. I was pointed straight for one of these gates, and it coming like a house of fire. Now I noticed that the skies were black with millions of people pointed for those gates. What a roar they made rushing through the air. The ground was as thick as ants with people too. Billions of them, I judge. I lit. I drifted to a gate with a swarm of people, and when it was my turn, the head clerk says, in a business-like way, Well, quick, where are you from? San Francisco, says I. San Fran what? says he. San Francisco. He scratched his head and looked puzzled, and then he says, Is it a planet? By George Peters, think of it. Planet, says I. It's a city, and moreover, it's one of the biggest and the finest, and there, there, he says, no time for conversation. We don't deal in cities here. Where are you from in a more general way? Oh, I says, I beg your pardon. Put me down for California. I had him again. Peters. He puzzled a second, and then he says, sharp and irritable, I don't know of any such planet. Is it a constellation? Oh, my goodness, says I. Constellation, says you. No, it's a state. Man, we don't deal with states here. Will you tell me where you are from in general? At large. Don't you understand? Oh, now I get your idea, I says. I'm from America, the United States of America. Peters. Do you know I had him again? If I hadn't, I'm a clam. His face was as blank as a target after a malicious shooting match. He turned to an underclerk and says, Where is America? What is America? The underclerk answered up prompt and says, There ain't any such orb. Orb, says I. Why, what are you talking about, young man? It ain't an orb. It's a country. It's a continent. Columbus discovered it. I reckon likely you've heard of him. Anyway, America, why, sir, America. Silence, says the head clerk. Once and for all, where are you from? Well, says I, I don't know anything more to say unless I lumps things. And I just say I'm from the world. Ah, he says. Now that's something like, what world? Peters, he had me that time. I looked at him puzzled. He looked at me worried, and then he burst out. Come, come, what world? 
Says I, why, the world, of course. The world, he says, hmm, there's billions of them. Next. That meant for me to stand aside. I'd done so, and a sky-blue man with seven heads and only one leg popped into my place. I took a walk. It just occurred to me then that all the myriads I had seen swarming to that gate up to this time were just like that creature. I tried to run across somebody I was acquainted with, but they were out of acquaintances of mine just then. So I thought the thing all over and finally sidled back there looking pretty meek and feeling rather stumped, as you may say. Well, said the head clerk, well, sir, says I, pretty humble. I don't seem to make out which world it is I'm from. But you may know it from this. It's the one the Savior saved. He bent his head at the name, and he says gently, The worlds he has saved are like to the gates of heaven in number. None can count them. What astronomical system is your world in? Perhaps that may assist. It's the one that has the sun in it, and the moon, and Mars, and he shook his head at each name, hadn't ever heard of them, you see, and Neptune, and Uranus, and Jupiter. Hold on, he says, hold on a minute, Jupiter, Jupiter, it seems to me we had a man from there eight or nine hundred years ago, but people from that system very seldom enter by this gate. All of a sudden he began to look at me so straight in the eye that I thought he was going to bore through me. Then he says, very deliberate, did you come straight here from your system? Yes, sir, I says, but I blushed the least bit in the world when I said it. He looked at me very stern and he says, that is not true. And this is not the place for prevarication. You wandered from your course. How did that happen? Says I, blushing again, I'm sorry. And I take back what I said and confess. I raced a little with the comet one day, only just the least little bit, only the tiniest lit. So, so, says he, without any sugar in his voice to speak on. I went on and says, but I only fell off just to bare point, and I went right back on my course again the minute the race was over. No matter. That divergence has made all this trouble. It has brought you to a gate that is billions of leagues from the right one. If you had gone to your own gate, they would have known all about your world at once and there would have been no delay. But we will try to accommodate you. He turned to an underclerk and says, What system is Jupiter in? I don't remember, sir, but I think there is a planet in one of the little new systems away out in one of the thinly world-dead corners of the universe I will see. He got up, got a balloon, and sailed up and up and up in front of a map that was as big as Rhode Island. He went on up till he was out of sight, and by and by he came down and got something to eat and went up again. To cut a long story short, he kept on doing this for a day or two, and finally he came down and said he thought he found that solar system, but it might be fly specks. So he got a microscope and went back. It turned out better than he feared. He had rusted out our system, sure enough. He got me to describe our planet and its distance from the sun, and then he says to his chief, Oh, I know the one he means now, sir. It is on the map. It is called the wart. Says I to myself, 
Young man, it wouldn't be wholesome for you to go down there and call it the wart. Well, they let me in then and told me I was safe forever and I wouldn't have any more trouble. Then they turned from me and went on with their work the same as if they considered my case all complete and shipshape. I was a good deal surprised at this, but I was diffident about speaking up and reminding them. I did so hate to do it, you know. It seemed a pity to bother them. They had so much on their hands. Twice I thought I would give up and let the thing go. So twice I started to leave, but immediately I thought, what a figure I should cut stepping out amongst the redeemed in such a rig, and that made me hang back and come to anchor again. People got to eye on me, clerks, you know, wondering why I didn't get underway. I couldn't stand this long. It was too uncomfortable, so at last I plucked up courage and tipped the head clerk a signal. He says, what? You here yet? What's wanting? Says I in a low and very confidential, making a trumpet with my hands at his ear. I beg pardon, and you mustn't mind my reminding you, and seem in the middle. But hain't you forgot something? He studied a second and says, forgot something? No, not that I know of. Think, says I. He thought, then he says, no, can't seem to have forgot anything. What is it? Look at me, says I. Look me all over. He done it. Well, says he. Well, says I, you don't notice anything? If I branched out amongst the elect looking like this, wouldn't I attract considerable attention? Wouldn't I be a little conspicuous? Well, he says, I don't see anything the matter. What do you lack? Lack? Why, I lack my harp and my wreath and my halo, my hymn book, and my palm branch. I lack everything that a body naturally requires up here, my friend. Puzzled? Peters. He was the worst puzzled man you ever saw. Finally, he says, well, you seem to be a curiosity every way a body takes you. I've never heard of these things before. I looked at the man a while in solid astonishment. Then I says, now, I hope you don't take it as no offense, for I don't mean any. But really, for a man that has been in the kingdom as long as I reckon you have, you do seem to know powerful little about its customs. It's custom, says he. Heaven is a large place, good friend. Large empires have many and diverse customs. Even small dominions have, as you doubtless know by what you have seen of the matter on a small scale in the wart. How can you imagine I could ever learn the varied customs of the countless kingdoms of heaven? It makes my head ache to think of it. I know the customs that prevail in those portions inhabited by peoples that are appointed to enter by my own gate and harky. That is quite enough knowledge for one individual to try to pack into his head in the 37 million years. I have devoted night and day to that study, but the idea of learning the customs of the whole appalling expanse of heaven, old oh man, how insanely you talk. Now, I don't doubt that this odd costume you talk about is the fashion in that district of heaven you belong to, but you won't be conspicuous in this section without it. I felt all right if that was the case, so I bade him goodbye and left. 
All day I walked toward the far end of a prodigious hall of the office, hoping to come out into heaven any moment, but it was a mistake. That hall was built on the general heavenly plan. It naturally couldn't be small. At last I got so tired I couldn't go any farther. So I sat down to rest and began to tackle the queer sort of strangers and ask for information, but I didn't get any. They couldn't understand my language, and I could not understand theirs. I got dreadfully lonesome. I was so downhearted and homesick I wished a hundred times I had never had died. I turned back, of course, about noon the next day. I got back at last and was on hand at the booking office once more. Says I to the head clerk, I begin to see that a man's got to be in his own heaven to be happy. Perfectly correct, he says. Did you imagine the same heaven would suit all sorts of men? Well, I had that idea, but I see the foolishness of it. Which way am I to go to get to my district? He called the underclerk that had examined the map, and he gave me general directions. I thanked him and started, but he says, wait a minute, it is millions of leagues from here. Go outside and stand on that red wishing carpet. Shut your eyes, hold your breath, and wish yourself there. I'm much obliged, says I. Why didn't you dart me through when I first arrived? We have a good deal to think of here. It was your place to think of it and ask for it. Goodbye. We probably shan't see you in this region for a thousand centuries or so. In that case, au revoir, says I. I hopped onto the carpet and held my breath and shut my eyes and wished I was in the booking office of my own section. The very next instant, a voice I knew sung out in a business kind of way. A harp and a hymn book, pair of wings and a halo size 13 for Captain Eli Stormfield of San Francisco. Make him out a clean bill of health and let him in. I opened my eyes. Sure enough, it was a Paiute engine I used to know in Tulare County. Mighty good fellow, I remembered being at his funeral, which consisted of him being burnt, and the other engines gomming their faces with his ashes and howling like wildcats. He was powerful glad to see me, and you make up your mind. I was just as glad to see him and feel that I was in the right kind of a heaven at last. Just as far as your eye could reach, there was swarms of clerks running and bustling around, tricking out thousands of Yanks and Mexicans and English and Arabs, and all sorts of people in their new outfits. And when they gave me my kit and I put on my halo and took a look in the glass, I could have jumped over a house for joy. I was so happy. Now this is something I like, says I. Now, says I, I'm all right. Show me a cloud. Inside of 15 minutes, I was a mile on my way toward the cloud banks and about a million people along with me. Most of us tried to fly, but some got crippled and nobody made a success of it. So we concluded to walk for the present till we had some wing practice. We began to meet swarms of people who were coming back. Some had harps and nothing else. Some had hymn books and nothing else. Some had nothing at all. All of them looked meek and uncomfortable. 
One young fellow hadn't anything left but his halo, and he was carrying that in his hand. All of a sudden he offered it to me and says, Would you hold it for me for a minute? Then he disappeared in the crowd. I went on. A woman asked me to hold her palm branch, and then she disappeared. A girl got me to hold her harp for her, and by George, she disappeared. And so on, and so on, till I was loaded down to the guards. Then comes a smiling old gentleman and asks me to hold his things. I swabbed off the perspiration and says, pretty tight. I'll have to get you to excuse me, my friend. I ain't no hat rack. About this time, I began to run across piles of those traps lying in the road. I just quietly dumped my extra cargo along with them. I looked around and Peter's. That whole nation was following me. Were loaded down the same as I'd been. The return crowd had got them to hold their things for a minute, you see. They all dumped their loads, too, and we went on. When I found myself perched on a cloud with a million other people, I never felt so good in my life, says I. Now this is according to the promises. I've been having my doubts, but now I am in heaven, sure enough. I gave my palm branch a wave or two for luck. And then I tautened up my harp strings and struck in. Well, Peters, you can't imagine anything like the row we made. It was grand to listen to and made a body thrill all over. But there was considerable many tunes going on at once. And that was a drawback to the harmony, you understand. And then there was a lot of engine tribes. And they kept up such another war whooping that they kind of took the tuck out of the music. By and by I quit performing and judged I'd take a rest. There was quite a nice mild old gentleman sitting next to me and I noticed he didn't take a hand. I encouraged him but he said he was naturally bashful and was afraid to try before so many people. By and by the old gentleman said he could never seem to enjoy music somehow. The fact was I was beginning to feel the same way but I didn't say anything. Him and I had a considerable long silence then, but of course it weren't noticeable in that place. After about 16 or 17 hours, during which I played and sung a little, now and then, always the same tune because I didn't know any other, I laid down my harp and began to fan myself with my palm branch. Then we both got to sighing pretty regular. Finally, says he, don't you know any tune but the one you've been pegging all day? Not another blessed one, says I. Don't you reckon you could learn another one, says he? Never, says I. I tried to, but I couldn't manage it. It's a long time to hang on to the one. Eternity, you know. Don't break my heart, says I. I'm getting pretty low-spirited enough already. After another long silence, says he, Are you glad to be here? Says I, Old man, I'll be frank with you. This ain't just as near my idea of bliss as I thought it was going to be when I used to go to church. Says he, What do you say to knocking off and calling it half a day? That's me, says I. I never wanted to get off watch so bad in my life. So we started. 
Millions were coming to the cloud bank all the time. Happy and hosannaing. Millions were leaving it all the time, looking mighty quiet, I tell you. We laid for the newcomers, and pretty soon I'd got them to hold all my things a minute, and then I was a free man again, and most outrageously happy. Just then I ran across old Sam Bartlett, who had been dead a long time, and stopped to have a talk with him. Says I, now tell me, is this to go on forever? Ain't there nothing else for a change? Says he, I'll set you right on that point very quick. People take the figurative language of the Bible and the allegories for literal, and the first thing they ask for when they get here is a halo and a harp and so on. Nothing that's harmless and reasonable is refused a body here, if he asks for it in the right spirit. So they are outfitted with these things without a word. They go and sing and play just about one day, and that's the last you'll ever see of them in the choir. They don't need anybody to tell them that that sort of thing wouldn't make a heaven. At least not a heaven that a sane man could stand a week and remain sane. That cloud bank is placed where noise can't disturb the old inhabitants, and so there ain't any harm in letting everybody get up there and cure himself as soon as he comes. Now you just remember this. Heaven is as blissful and lovely as it can be, but it's just the busiest place you ever heard of. There ain't any idle people here after the first day. Singing hymns and waving palm branches through all eternity is pretty when you hear about it in the pulpit, but it's as poor a way to put in valuable time as a body could contrive. It would just make a heaven of warbling ignoramuses, don't you see? Eternal rest sounds comforting in the pulpit too. Well, you try it once and see how heavy time will hang on your hands. Why, Stonefield, a man like you that had been active and stirring all his life, would go mad in six months in a heaven where he hadn't anything to do. Heaven is the very last place to come to rest in. And don't you be afraid to bet on that, says I. Sam, I'm as glad to hear it as I thought I'd be sorry. I'm glad I come now, says he. Come, ain't you physically tired, says I. Sam, it ain't any name for it. I'm dog-tired. Just so, just so. You've earned a good sleep and you'll get it. You've earned a good appetite and you'll enjoy your dinner. It's the same here as it is on earth. You've got to earn a thing, square and honest, before you enjoy it. You can't enjoy first and earn afterwards. But there's this difference here. You can choose your own occupation and all the powers of heaven will be put forth to help you make a success of it if you do your level best. The shoemaker on earth that had the soul of a poet in him won't have to make shoes here. Now that's all reasonable and right, says I. Plenty of work and the kind you hanker after. No more pain, no more suffering. Oh, hold on. There's plenty of pain here, but it don't kill. There's plenty of suffering here, but it don't last. You see, happiness ain't a thing in itself. It's only a contrast with something that ain't pleasant. That's all it is. There ain't a thing you can mention that is happiness in its own self. It's only so by contrast with the other thing. And so, 
as soon as the novelty is over and the force of the contrast dulled, it ain't happiness any longer, and you have to get something fresh. Well, there's plenty of pain and suffering in heaven. Consequently, there's plenty of contrast, and just no end to happiness. Says I, it's the sensiblest heaven I've heard of yet, Sam. Although it's about as different from the one I was brought up on as a live princess is different from her own wax figure. Along in the first months, I knocked around about the kingdom, making friends and looking at the country, and finally settled down in a pretty likely region to have a rest before taking another start. I went on making acquaintances and gathering up information. I had a good deal of talk with an old bald-headed angel by the name of Sandy McWilliams. He was from somewhere in New Jersey. I went about with him considerable. We used to lay around warm afternoons in the shade of a rock on some meadow ground that was pretty high and out of the marshy slush of his cranberry farm. And there we used to talk about all kinds of things and smoke pipes. One day, says I, about how old might you be, Sandy? Seventy-two. I judge so. How long have you been in heaven? Twenty-seven years come Christmas. How old was you when you come up? Why, seventy-two, of course. You can't mean it. Why can't I mean it? Because if you was seventy-two then, then you are naturally ninety-nine now. No, but I ain't. I stay the same age I was when I come. Well, says I, come to think, there's something just here that I want to ask about. Down below, I always had an idea that in heaven we would all be young and bright and spry. Well, you can be young if you want to. You've only got to wish. Well, then why didn't you wish? I did. They all do. You'll try it someday, like enough. But you'll get tired of the change pretty soon. Why? Well, I'll tell you. Now, you've always been a sailor. Did you ever try some other business? Yes, I tried keeping grocery once up in the mines, but I couldn't stand it. It was too dull. No stir, no storm, no life about it. It was like being part dead and part live, both at the same time. I wanted to be one thing or to other. I shut up shop pretty quick and went to see. That's it. Grocery people like it, but you couldn't. You see, you wasn't used to it. Well, I wasn't used to being young, and I couldn't seem to take any interest in it. I was strong and handsome and had curly hair. Yes, and wings too. Gay wings like a butterfly. I went to picnics and dances and parties with the fellows and tried to carry on and talk nonsense with the girls, but it wasn't any use. I couldn't take to it. Fact is, it was an awful bore. What I wanted was early to bed and early to rise and something to do. And when my work was done, I wanted to sit quiet and smoke and think, not tear around with a parcel of giddy young kids. You can't think what I suffered whilst I was young. How long was you young? Only two weeks, but that was plenty for me 
laws. I was so lonesome. You see, I was full of the knowledge and experience of 72 years. The deepest subject those young folks could strike was only ABC to me. And to hear him argue, oh my, it would have been funny if it hadn't been so pitiful. Well, I was so hungry for the ways and the sober talk I was used to that I tried to ring in with the old people, but they wouldn't have it. They considered me a conceited young upstart and gave me the cold shoulder. Two weeks was a plenty for me. I was glad to get back my bald head again and my pipe and my old drowsy reflections in the shade of a rock or a tree. Well, says I, do you mean to say you're going to stand still at 72 forever? I don't know, and I ain't particular. But I ain't going to drop back to 25 anymore. I know that mighty well. I know a slight more than I did 27 years ago, and I enjoy learning all the time, but I don't seem to get any older. That is bodily. My mind gets older and stronger and better seasoned and more satisfactory. Says I, if a man comes here at 90, don't he ever set himself back? Of course he does. He sets himself back to 14, tries it a couple hours and feels like a fool. Sets himself forward to 20, it ain't much improvement, tries 30, 50, 80, finally 90. Finds he is more at home and comfortable at the same old figure he is used to than any other way. Or, if his mind begun to fail him on earth at 80, that's where he finally sticks up here. He sticks at the place where his mind was last at its best, for there's where his enjoyment is best, and his ways most set and established. Does a chap at 25 always stay 25 and look it? If he is a fool, yes. But if he is bright and ambitious and industrious, the knowledge he gains and the experiences he has changes his ways and thoughts and likings and make him find his best pleasure in the company of people above that age. So he allows his body to take on that look of as many added years as he needs to make him comfortable and proper in that sort of society. He lets his body go on taking the look of age accordingly as he progresses, and by and by he will be bald and wrinkled outside and wise and deep within. Babies the same? Babies the same. Laws. What asses we used to be on earth about these things. We said we'd always be young in heaven. We didn't say how young. We didn't think of that, perhaps. That is, we didn't all think alike, anyway. When I was a boy of about seven, I suppose I thought we'd all be twelve in heaven. When I was twelve, I thought... We'd all be 18 or 20 in heaven. When I was 40, I began to go back. I remembered, I hoped, we'd all be about 30 years old in heaven. Neither a man nor a boy ever thinks the age he has is exactly the best one. He puts the right age a few years older or a few years younger than he is. Then he makes that ideal age the general age of the heavenly people and he expects everybody to stick 
at that age. Stand stock still and expects him to enjoy it. Now just think of the idea of standing still in heaven. Think of a heaven made up entirely of hoop rolling, marble playing cubs of seven years, or awkward, diffident, sentimental immaturities of 19, or of vigorous people of 30, healthy-minded, brimming with ambition, but chained hand and foot to that one age and its limitations, like so many helpless galley slaves. Think of the dull sameness of a society made up of people of all one age and one set of looks, habits, tastes, and feelings. Think how superior to earth it would be, with its variety of types and faces and ages, and the enlivening attrition of the myriad interests that come into pleasant collision in such a variegated society. Look here, says I. Do you know what you're doing? Well, what am I doing? You are making heaven pretty comfortable in one way, but you are playing the mischief with it in another. How do you mean? Well, I says, take a young mother that's lost her child and shh, he says, look, it was a woman, middle-aged and had grizzled hair. She was walking slow and her head was bent down and her wings hanging limp and droopy and she looked ever so tired and was crying, poor thing. She passed along by with her head down that way and the tears running down her face and didn't see us. Then Sandy said, low and gentle and full of pity, she's hunting for her child. No, found it, I reckon. Lord, how she's changed. But I recognized her in a minute, though it's 27 years since I saw her. A young mother she was, about 22 or 4, or along there, and blooming and lovely and sweet. Oh, just a flower. And all her heart and all her soul was wrapped up in her child, her little girl, two years old. And the girl died. And she went wild with grief, just wild. Well, the only comfort she had was that she'd see her child again, in heaven, never more to part, she said, and kept on saying it over and over, never more to part. And the words made her happy. Yes, they did. They made her joyful. And when I was dying 27 years ago, she told me to find her child the first thing and say that she was coming soon. Soon, very soon, she hoped and believed. Why, it's pitiful, Sandy. He didn't say anything for a while, but sat looking at the ground thinking. Then he says, kind of mournful, and now she's come. Well, go on. Stormfield, maybe she hasn't found the child, but I think she has. Looks so to me. I've seen cases before. You see, she's kept that child in her head, just the way it was when she jounced it in her arms, a little chubby thing. But here, it didn't elect to stay a child. No, it elected to grow up, which it did. And in these 27 years, it has learned all the deep scientific learning there is to learn, and is studying and studying and learning and learning more and more all the time. And don't give a damn for anything but learning. Just learning and discussing gigantic problems with people like herself. Well, Stormfield, don't you see? 
her mother knows cranberries and how to tend them and pick them and put them up and market them and not another blame thing. Her and her daughter can't be any more company for each other now than mud turtle and bird of paradise. Poor thing, she was looking for a baby to jounce. I think she's struck a disappointment. Sandy, what will they do? Stay unhappy forever in heaven? No, they'll come together and get adjusted by and by. But not this year. And not next. By and by. Little Desperandum will return shortly for the conclusion of Captain Stormfield's visit to heaven. Nil Desperandum is a production of the Bear Crawling Nation, engineered and produced by Charles McFall, edited and published by Jim Phillips, and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license.